Welcome everyone to Rockin' Nation Podcast. This is another episode of Cocktail Hour featuring Sam Snelling and Matthew J. Harris. Matt, tonight in my glass is a dram of E.H. Taylor Small Batch Select. I'm in a celebratory mood because we have a very, very special guest planned here in a few minutes. And proof that anybody will answer emails. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so for that occasion, I decided to break out some EH. Are you having anything to drink? Uh, I finished off um, just a minute ago uh, a double shot of the fine Four Roses small batch select that I procured last week. It's delightful. Magical. <laughs> um, it's really though, good, isn't it? It's like it, it's, really good. It's really good. Ellery, though, I think didn't read the my fiance didn't read the proof on the or like even like take a sip of it because she immediately used it to make a mint julep and that was a uh, spicier Ooh. mint julep than she was anticipating. <laughs> but she powered through and she said, "Next time, I'm just gonna use the buffalo trace." So, um. <laughs> You know, but much power to her. Um, you know, she made a mistake there, but you know, if that's the mistake she makes, then it's a one that I'll forgive because she's usually got impeccable uh, cocktail taste. So um, she gets a pass on that front. I was gonna say, I bet, I bet that uh, that mint julep tasted really good. It did. She's like, it's not bad. She, uh, it had a little bit more spice to it. Um, a little bit of a, and it was a little bit. She said it was a little bit smokier, but she didn't mind it once the uh, ice melted down in it. A little bit it was actually pretty good but uh early on when it was a uh, strongly of uh, a small batch uh kind of overpowered that mint and the menthol a little bit yeah well i think uh so four roses typically has a little bit of a higher rye content than a lot of the other bourbons um so it's going to be a little bit spicier and, and the proof on that uh, i don't know it offhand but it's 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 52 it's a 52 yeah i was gonna say it's it's over 100 it's, proof so yeah it's 104 on the proof so um but it's it's good i would say um to anyone that does it you might put a little more ice in it than usual just because i think it it cuts pretty nicely but i'm you know the rye content for me is is not a big deal it's it's not like a straight rye and it's um it's got a good it kind of makes you pucker a little bit on the front end but it's got a really kind of nice um caramely kind of like it coats really well it's got a caramely kind of finish and some spice finish on the back end so it's it's pretty good. Um, it's it's you know I wouldn't say if, I wouldn't let the spice kind of ward anybody off from that. Yeah. Uh, well, despite um, me saying this is a cocktail hour, it, it, it we always have to start with cocktail hour. Um, this is an actual episode of Dive Cuts. We are on uh, episode twenty six of season three now, Matt. Twenty six episodes of this crap. You believe it? <laughs> Man, people are. <laughs> People have been way too tolerant with the downloads, um, so we thank them for that. And but but this is a good one. Um, <laughs> we redeemed ourselves this week. We hope. So for our guest tonight, um, Matt went out and and did the legwork on uh, on getting everyone's favorite uh, college basketball analytics guy, uh, Ken Pomeroy, is is going to join us on the podcast. Um, so I think we're just going to hop into that. You good yeah. with that? Yeah, I'm good with it. Let's get to it. All right, uh, here we go. Okay, and I'd like to welcome in uh, a new friend of the podcast, 
the one, the only, Ken Pomeroy. You can follow him on Twitter, at Ken Pomeroy. His website is the, uh, at this point, infamous KenPom.com. Uh, Ken, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great, Sam. Thanks for having me on. Well, we are thrilled, uh, as avid subscribers, uh, both Matt and I, to, to KenPom.com. Um, there's a couple things that we definitely want to kind of start out with. And, and as, uh, as fairly analytical guys, uh, one of the things that I've kind of been interested in from going back to the beginnings of your analytical model and when you started kind of working out the numbers, uh, college basketball has sort of undergone a lot of uh, somewhat superficial changes in order to try to change up the way the game is played. Um, so have you noticed any overall trends from, say, like the mid-2000s kind of uh, up to now and the impact of those rules? Have they actually improved the pace, the play, uh, you know, the style of basketball that we're seeing on an annual basis? Well, I think, yeah, that's a good question. I, I, you know, certainly to me, there's almost no comparison, like, between the quality of play now and the quality of play 10 years ago. Like, it's, it's better you know, basketball is really better than it's ever been. The players are just more skill, have a more diversity of skill um, than they used to. Uh, you know, when it comes to the rules changes themselves and trying to isolate their effect on the game, you know, certainly the reduction of the shot clock was long overdue and it's probably overdue that it should be reduced further, but it at least accomplished the goal of adding, you know, four or five possessions to the game, which I think makes the game more appealing to, to most fans. Uh, so that has helped, you know, the, the, the movement of the three-point line, you know, the other big rules change. And uh, I feel like that has helped as well. And it's honestly like, again, almost you can, you can move it back even further. And I think the game would adjust and, and even be better. But um, I think both of those things have, uh, have generally uh, – helped the quality of the game. I mean, the quality of the game is going to improve anyway, but, but those things have, were, were, I think needed to uh, kind of keep up with the, the skill of the players. It seemed like last year was an, an outlier of sorts. I think, you know, across the sport, three point shooting was down something like one, 1.1 percentage points, at least percentage wise. Um, scoring was down a bit. It seemed like in some, in some programs pace was off a little bit. Is that just growing pains like you're talking about just associated with, you know, a little bit of lagging effect with those rules changes as programs adapt, or was it maybe just a factor of, we saw a little bit more roster turnover a year ago. I was just sort of curious as to, you know, last year people I think noticed, you know, overall the sport seemed a little bit bumpier, or a little bit rickier than it had been. Whereas I think it's just, that's just part and parcel of what happens when you make some fundamental changes to the sport and you're trying to, you know, improve the game and, and alter it a little bit in a way that's appealing. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think, uh, I think in general, the quality of play was probably not that much different than previous seasons. Certainly at the top of the, of the game, you know, we didn't have that, didn't seem like we had that great team emerging. Although, you know, again, we didn't see how conference tournaments and the NCAA tournament played out. And uh, there have been, you know, recent seasons where we didn't see a great team heading into the tournament. And then somebody just runs through it and you look back and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, they were really actually playing pretty well for two months. So, you know, if Kansas had gone on a run, I think we'd be maybe speaking a little bit differently about that. But Honestly, I think you can probably boil down that perception to just having Zion Williamson be in the sport one year and not having him in, in the sport the next year. Like, you know, he, he sucked a lot of air, you know, out of, uh, out of the commentary for, uh, for people. And, and when he left, it was like, 
you know, there's nothing to compare to this guy. So, so I think that storyline is a little bit overplayed, but, um, but certainly the, you know, at the, again, at the top of the game, maybe the, the quality was a little bit down. Well, I do think there's something to be said for, you know, the average depth of a recruiting class. Um, and I'm kind of curious, like one of the things that, you know, is very, I guess the lifeblood of any college program is recruiting and, you know, fans follow it in earnest. Uh, how much do you sort of play into the role of, of recruiting rankings and individual rankings versus, uh, you know, team rankings? Because uh, I, I tend to kind of think that like an individual player's ranking is, uh, you know, can be a little bit subjective, but in general, like the guys at the top of the guys at the top and, but overall class ranks aren't really less uh, or aren't really as important. Like once you kind of get outside the top two or three classes, um, how, how do the sort of recruiting rankings play into like the preseason projections? And um, cause I know like you've said in the past, the, uh, the projections that you start off at the end of the year are, are basically kind of phased out um, and done with by like late December, early January. Um, so what sort of impact do you, do you think recruiting generally has on your preseason stuff? It, it, it plays a role. It's, it's getting, you know, increasingly challenging to, uh, to find some, uh, you know, some good meaning in recruiting rankings for the following season. Um, but there's no question like, yeah, the best classes, like they're going to tend to make the most impact. It's just that, uh, you know, the impact of these players often, once you get past the top 10 or 15 guys, you know, the, the impact of, of the rest of, of that group of freshmen on their freshman season is uh, not, not too high. You know, year two and year three tends to be when there's uh, there's more impact. And furthermore, you know, you have this trend now. I mean, there was a lot, you know, when, the, when I did my preseason ratings last year, there was a lot of talk about uh, Memphis and how they, you know, ranked 50th in my preseason ratings and you know, ultimately, uh, they ended up finishing 59th. And I mean, we know part, is that a humble part of the reason was, <laughs> well, it's, I mean, I think it's really illustrative though, of like the, the, the challenges of including, uh, uh, you know, recruits in your system is that, I mean, obviously they didn't have James Wiseman for the vast majority of the season. And had they had him, you know, maybe they're, you know, probably, I mean, I'm not sure they're the top 25 team, I think, but, uh, it didn't work out that way. And, the recruiting rankings, you know, they're based on uh, the past. So, uh, you know, if uh, Mark Fultz, you know, misses the last 10 games of a season or, you know, somebody else, you know, some other high-ranked recruit doesn't perform. And we've had a, a few of those where guys just kind of, uh, you know, shut it down mid-season or whatever or get hurt or get ruled ineligible or whatever. You know, the the algorithm's already kind of like accounting for that. And so uh, that kind of tends to... Uh, you know, mitigate the impact of having a number one or, or a top five recruit or something like that. Along that line, you know, we, we've sort of seen, at least in the last two years, kind of the the increased emphasis on the transfer market. Um, it seemed like seven, eight years ago, Fred Hoiberg was masterful in understanding that he could go get a top 50 or top 75 kid who maybe had had a bumpy ride somewhere else and really upgrade raw talent on his roster with minimal competition from, you know, other blue blood programs or other programs that might be a little bit more marquee, but it seems like, you know, I think of Kentucky in the last two to three years has jumped in and, you know, taken guys like Reed Travis, Nate Sestina, you know, they go out and they get Olivier Saar and Davion Mintz. It seems like the transfer market now 
you know, for four or five years was a really great way for a program like Missouri or Iowa State to go kind of hunting in the bargain bin for talent. And now it seems like Blue Bloods have caught up to that. And so I saw in January that you wrote kind of about, you know, what causes guys to transfer. But I was just sort of curious what how you assess what the transfer market is right now. Are we overvaluing guys in that space right now? I, you know, I looked a couple weeks ago and it seems like the vast majority of guys will see less minutes, lower usage and lower scoring. I think there's a psychological allure of going out and getting an instant impact guy that maybe leads us to overrate kind of the quality there. But as somebody who looks at these numbers and has to account for them in his rankings, just what do you make of the transfer market that's sort of become a big part of spring now? Right. I, you know, I always think about a line that my colleague, John Gassaway used to say, I haven't seen him say it recently, but basically if you want to, uh, you know, increase your stock by 30%, just announce that you're transferring because, uh, invariably it seems like, you know, somebody announces they're transferring and there's a whole lot of hubbub about it. And part of it is, you know, there's just not a ton going on like this time of year, for instance. So if you, uh, you know, there's not much going on this time of year and it seems like there's much more coverage of the sport this time of year. So, uh, if you, you know, declare you're transferring, even if you're, you know, if you're Nate Sestina, for instance, I mean, Reed Travis, I guess was probably a better example where, you know, when he, ultimately committed to Kentucky, it was like, oh, this, you know, cements Kentucky is the best team in the country. And it's like, like really? Like, does Reed Travis make that much of a difference? Like, Kerry Blackshear, I guess, is another good example from last year, you know, where it's like, you know, oh, yeah, watch out, Kerry Blackshear, you know, preseason uh, SEC player of the year. And he, I mean, he had a good season, but it's like, let's just, you know, take a step back here and look what these guys did at their previous stops. And, you know, they were solid players for lesser programs. So it stands to reason if they're going to take a step up and in level, you know, their, their role is going to be diminished a little bit. And, um, you know, the transfer market is, is important. I'm not saying that it's not, but you know, the one thing, certainly I've noticed in the preseason ratings that it's a, it's an inefficient market in the sense that, um, you know, when a player transfers, he tends to, he obviously leaves a hole in his previous program, but he tends to not produce as much with his new program, uh, as he would have with the old program, you know, even accounting for a change in level or whatever, there's a little bit of loss of, of, of contribution there, you know, which you probably could anticipate just because, you know, when you're in a program that has some continuity, like, you know, there's less to learn from year to year and you can kind of work on your skills. Whereas if you go to a new program, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, drag on your ability to just work on your skills. You got to learn a new system as well. And that takes away a little bit in terms of production. Yeah, I think that's uh, actually an interesting thing that might get overlooked. And one of the things that, uh, you know, I think it was, uh, actually on the athletic uh dana o'neill had a recent piece uh, kind of talking about transfers and uh and both the traditional you know sit out transfer and the graduate transfer and the adjustment that they have to make uh you know there was an, a rule kind of i guess possibly going into place which is going to allow players a one-time transfer uh and not have to sit out i am personally uh in favor of this rule because i kind of think it's important that players have uh, you know that that choice and and the ability to to move freely uh, the way that they are able to in other sports and the way that coaches are able to. Um, so I think it's a, it's a good rule in a lot of ways, but it also can be kind of like we've been talking about a little bit of false gold, uh, a fool's gold. So I mean, I'm kind of curious as to like what kind of impact do you think that might have as far as the transfer market is concerned, as far as some of the preseason, you know, rankings and projections are concerned, 
when it comes to projecting teams that are maybe moving uh, more on transfers and more on transfers that are, are going to be available right away? For my system, it, I think it'll make it uh, better uh, just because, you know, transfers have a, a, a known track record uh, at the Division One level. So, uh, you know, where my system struggles is that it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't know the impact of, uh, you know, trans, you know, JUCO transfers or it doesn't know the impact of, um, maybe guys who redshirted last year who weren't highly thought of recruits or, or things like that. But when you, you know, you have a guy coming in, who's got a previous track record, um, that, you know, it's one less unknown for my system, I guess. So, uh, overall, um, from that standpoint, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I kind of, you know, I share your, your viewpoint in that you didn't really probably get around to to saying this, but it probably makes the, the, the game worse in general. Like it's, it's obviously the right thing to do. Like if, you know, if a coach is allowed to like run off players without any excuse, like, you know, players should be allowed to, to leave and, and go to other places. I mean, there should be some equality in that at least. So, um, so I, I do agree that it's the, the right thing to do. It, it, it probably also makes the game worse, but you know, until, uh, until the NCAA wants to get its act together on on compensating players in sort of a, a fair way, uh, this is what we're left with. I was just sort of curious. You know, you, you mentioned you know before we came on that, that you've done s- some conversations with with college staffs. You know, whether it's on scheduling or on you know analytics in general. And I was just sort of curious. You know, it's been two decades. You know, you go back and you can see data from '01 and '02 on the site. Just how do you think analytics have changed the way, you know, more broadly that we talk about, you know, the sport at this time of year? I think, you know, what I'm constantly struck by is I think we're having a more nuanced discussion now. And I think how we're evaluating teams is less, I think, about, you know, what a guy's raw production are. I think we're having more discussions about impact, you know, you know, off the ball. We're having more discussions about how a guy, you know, what his effects are, you know, when he's not, you know, touching the ball or when he's not, you know, creating steals or turnovers. How do you think the game and the conversation that we have now has sort of evolved as analytics have become more ingrained? Well, I think, you know, the next frontier is really getting better information on player impact. Uh, I think we've, you know, the, you know, how, how this, this, the discussion has evolved certainly varies from the, you know, depending on your source. I mean, in some ways it hasn't evolved at all. Um, but in other ways, you know, it has, certainly understanding the impact of pace on statistics on a, you know, whether it's a player level or a team level. Um, you know, I think people that really care about this stuff, you know, understand that at this point. Um, the player level stuff is, is uh, I think a lot more challenging. We're still, you know, relying, you still pe- see people rely pretty heavily on, you know, on off splits or plus minus or things like that. Yeah. And I mean, I, I hate to like say it, but those are not quite useless, but <laughs> not super useful at the college level. I mean, you know, that, that stuff, that, that kind of data takes some pretty heavy like processing to be useful at the NBA level. And, you know, the NBA has an 82 game schedule. They, you know, the difference between the best and worst team in the league is not nearly as great as it is between the best and worst team in division one. You know, you got a lot of bench time for your stars in the NBA, whereas you really don't have that in college. Uh, so, uh, you know, the plus minus stuff at the college level, even though it's now in the box score is really uh, to be used with a lot of caution. But I do think there are like promising approaches that uh, I kind of see little, uh, you know, hints of people doing out there. 
that uh, I think in the next you know year or two or three uh, will really add um, you know a lot to the the conversation uh, at least analytically regarding uh, you know which players are kind of doing uh, contributing more than we see from the box score. So that leads me to the question: like I have a synergy subscription, and I and I find it incredibly useful, but for like profiling players in terms of like actions they're used in, in terms of like you know, quantifying how they're kind of used within an offense. But how do you sort of view like synergy level data, or like a hoop lens level kind of data, which is trying, I think, to give us a granular sense of guys, but you know, that's still, you know, with synergy, that's a hand, that's a person having to sit there, watch the video and hand enter and hand code and people are not perfect. So I've seen guys like Neil Johnson are doing like motion tracking stuff at the college level. There's been some interesting stuff that's happened. So I'm just sort of curious, you know, when you look at Synergy or Hooplins or other guys out there working, what do you think is promising or what do you think we should, you know, evaluate, you know, or how should we view that data as we sort of like see it become more reference? I mean, I know I use it extensively. So what do you feel like we should know as we sort of move through that sort of discussion? Right. Well, I think you understand the the limitations of, of Synergy data. You know, it's, it is being tracked by people who I, you know, probably aren't getting paid very well and might be uh, lacking motivation to, to, yeah. to be super accurate. I mean, I'm sure they're, you know, they're doing a good job or whatever, but uh, you know, obviously again, they're, you know, they're not, there might not be a lot in it for them to get super accurate. And there might not be a lot of people checking, you know, how accurate they are. So, um, so I, you know, there are some, some useful tidbits from synergy. I mean, to me, the, the most useful thing is just, being able to, you know, sort video, basically, you know, filter video. And, and, and I think that's like super helpful. Um, so, uh, so, and then you're talking about the, the stuff about, uh, that Neil Johnson's working on. And, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I guess that's part of the, one of the things that, that will, will be a breakthrough, you know, the player tracking data really, you know, obviously in the NBA has just yielded a ton of interesting research and, we're seeing that in other sports and it's just not uh, realistic to expect player tracking with cameras in every division one arena. Um, so if it's going to happen at the college level, it's going to happen with some technology that basically takes it from a TV screen. And once we have that technology, like, you know, watch out, like even if there are going to be, you know, errors and, and missing data at times, uh, it's still going to provide a, a whole lot of useful information that uh, will really help us kind of understand uh, the game better. Well, and on like the the sort of player tracking side of it, I mean, is there a role that that sort of having uh, as Missouri fans will sort of know the impact of of losing Im- important you know players on the roster the last three years, uh, and how that can kind of impact any sort of uh, you know expectations or projections going into the following season? Um, like, I think there are a lot of Mizzou fans who will kind of point to a time uh, mid season, even when Missouri wasn't playing as well as maybe we thought they were still kind of sitting in the, uh, the mid to low fifties in in your rankings. Um, and then Jeremiah Tillman uh, was, was lost for a, a substantial period of time and, and like the bottom fell out and they just, they just sank down to, I think as low as almost like 120 at one point. Um, so how much of a role does it play for you when it comes to, um, you know, expectations for a team and what they are capable of going into the following season when, you know, a significant role player and maybe another good example would be somebody like 
uh, Yudoka Azubuke at Kansas, who is clearly a, like a huge space taker and, and missed a substantial portion of his junior year, you know, comes back and has, you know, a ridiculous senior year and, and you know, firmly plants Kansas in the number one spot. So is, is there a role that like that kind of player loss plays into and to your, your projections? There is, it's kind of crude, but uh, it will look at a guy like Tillman and uh, understand that. So, you know, basically the way it works is like, it takes uh, kind of a player's like total box score contribution and uh, figures out, you know, how important that player was with respect to his team. And if that player comes back, that gives the rating a boost. And if, if he leaves, like, you know, dings the rating and it's all kind of proportional on, on various box score stats and his age or his, his eligibility class. Um, but that's what goes into it. And so with a guy like Tillman, it, it does make a correction, um, you know, basically assuming that, hey, here's what he would have done if he had played the whole season. And so um, so when he does come back, that boosts the, uh, you know, the potential production for the following season a little bit. You know, it's not it's definitely a crude method, but it at least corrects things uh, in the right direction, which uh, is kind of what I'm going for. I mean, uh, it, you know, I, I love the attention the preseason ratings get, and I, I put a lot of effort into them. And and and, uh, and I, you know, I, I appreciate the criticism sometimes, but uh, but the bottom line is the idea is just to get these teams kind of in just in the right you know zip code to start the season. So the predictions early in the season are are good, and that any adjustments that need to be made over the next you know the first month of the season, whatever, are hopefully for most teams um, not too big. Just sort of, uh, you know, off that sort of front, you know, we saw the, you know, in the past I've asked you about kind of just the general state of play in the SEC, and it seemed like last year it was emblematic of, you know, the sport as a whole. We had a lot of roster turnover. We had some new coaches come in and having to adjust new systems, and I was just sort of curious as you sort of look around, at least at the power conference level, you know, where do you think the SEC sort of sits or what stands out to you, at least analytically, about the league? Is there anything that's interesting or does it seem pretty um representative of the sport as a whole yeah i mean the so first of all i guess you know one reason it would have been really nice to have an ncaa tournament is to uh figure out uh if my ratings were somewhat in the ballpark on on the sec because it obviously didn't think (laughs) it was not a fan of (laughs) no it was not a fan and it was not a fan to the point where it, it you know it did uh kind of puzzle me like i think there's like 11 big 10 teams that were ranked better than the best sec team which yeah which was curious definitely it doesn't you know the big 10 is definitely better than the sec but i don't think there were 11 like i don't think kentucky would have finished 12th in the big 10 like just gonna go on a limb there so uh so that was probably the you know the biggest thing in my ratings last year that i really was uh i don't know if ashamed of was it's too strong of a word but it definitely bothered me um, but well, some of it has to surely be like, I mean, once teams kind of get within the conference, I mean, they tend to kind of beat up on each other. So, I mean, it's just as likely that, you know, the 10th place team, the SEC can, can, you know, beat Kentucky on an off night at home. Um, you know, and if Kentucky or any of the top other teams, in the SEC, like they, they did this year, didn't quite have the kind of non-conference season that they, they wanted, uh, you know, Florida, I think, is another good example of a team that sort of underachieved in their non-conference, yep. and um, and I think that probably pulls everybody in the league down a little bit. Well, I'll tell you what pulled it down too is that Texas A&M was awful in non-conference play, and then 
they were like, "There's always one team." Normally, in South that Carolina. That. Well, the, it's, <laughs> it wasn't like, but the whole thing was that, like, it wasn't okay. That was part of it. Like, A and M was bad, but A and M was bad in non-conference, and they were good in, in SEC play. And so that's just naturally going to pull the rating of everybody else down because, like, you know, when when A and M is uh, is struggling to beat, you know, teams in the the you know over two fifty or whatever, and and losing to Fairfield, and then they go into SEC play and they're you know going five hundred. It's like uh, that's that's gonna pull the, that's gonna pull the league down. And it's really not fair to the other teams like A and M probably, and not just going five hundred, but like being really good on the road. Like they beat some good teams on the road. Yeah, I mean they were like they were clearly like a better team at the end of the season than they were in the beginning of the season. And uh, my rating system, as most rating systems do, kind of assumes uh, you know you're basically the same team you were and in November that you were in, in March. And uh, in the case of AM, that was uh, clearly not the case. That sort of brings up an interesting point. I always, you know, we, I think it's, this question's near and dear to me just because I think we've heard it a bunch, which is, I think there was frustration and there is frustration among a segment of Mizzou fans about, you know, where the rebuild is under Conzo Martin at this point. And I think a lot of people look at the Kim Palm ratings and sort of say, and use it as a cudgel to, like, say, look, this, you know, they've, they've sank under this guy. They, you know, they've slid in the rankings that are here. Know where they've typically been. They started the year here. How should we, you know, use the rankings as a, as a metric to evaluate coaching performance? I've always sort of been curious about that. I think we always sort of just look at the raw number next to a coach, but you know, maybe that's probably the best way to do it. But I've always been sort of curious: is how do you use them as you sort of evaluate coaching performance and sort of where programs are and sort of how they should be used to set expectations uh, throughout the course of a year? It's really, it's really tough. I mean, it's. Uh, yeah, I think in a crude sense, yeah, looking at the overall rating at the end of the year is, um, you know, it gives you a decent snapshot of, of where the program is. There's obviously always context to that. There's injuries and, you know, it, you might have a player or two just randomly depart for the NBA at the end of the season that you didn't expect and that can set you back. Um, but in general, I would feel like there's, you know, there's, kind of like the ranking in my system, like relative to program expectation, if there was some sort of uh, measure for that, I think that would be, uh, that would be the, the ideal thing. I've, you know, I've really, I've tried to do uh, something like that to, to like evaluate uh, like kind of the potential for a coach to, to get fired. And it's really a, kind of a, a sadistic thing to do. <laughs> and, and since I've been doing this for 15 years, and I've, you know, gotten to know a bunch of coaches, like it's, yeah, you know, might not be the best for, for those relationships, but, but I did. <laughs> hey, actuaries need to live, man. I did create that program rating last year. And I just noticed Mizzou is 45th in terms of program rating. Yeah. And that was sort of my question. That seemed like you was a way to create a benchmarking system. There was to sort of say over 18 years, this is where you are. And so where, how far are you relative to that baseline was, I think that was always sort of a, a good handy tool there. So I didn't know if that was probably a, a an applicable approach either was to say how far off that, you know, 20 year right. average are we? Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, that's something was one of the motivations is just to get a feel for what is like kind of what's the level of this program. And, uh, you know, you can't hold it against Conzo Martin that, that Jeremiah Tillman got hurt last year. So you give him a little bit of a pass for that, but, uh, you know, clearly if you're, you know, I mean, I don't know what the, the local feeling is, but this is a year that's going to, it feels like it's going to be, you know, of all the power leagues, like the SEC is probably the hardest to figure out. And there's just a, a, a bunch of teams in the middle of that league that uh, are going to be, 
you know, probably fighting for rat large bids with, you know, not super great records and, uh, Mizzou could be in that mix, but, uh, but it feels like they're, if they can't attain that mix, then, you know, things could be a little bit uh, unsettling there. Sam, you have a favorite question you want to get off before we uh, let King go. <laughs> so, uh, Ken, one of my favorite, uh, things that you've, you've done is the, uh, the, the study long-term study of the results when teams either uh, foul up three or uh, defend up three. And uh, I was a, so a little bit of background on, on me. I, I was a basketball player, played in college just at the D2 level in the uh, you know late 90s. Uh, coached some high school basketball in the you know late 2000s. Um, and from that kind of perspective, I've always been more of a defend up three. Um, the modern analytics uh, folks all seem to be very big proponents of the foul up three. Yet you had this wonderful blog post, which basically said they're basically doing the same thing when it comes to your win percentage. <laughs> and following you on Twitter, it does seem like you kind of lean towards one side of the coin on this. <laughs> Uh, is is that just me imparting like my own belief system onto you, or is there one one side of the coin that you fall on on this discussion? No, I mean I'm I'm pretty loyal to the data, and uh, I do think that uh, you uh, if you could if you could possibly like time your foul with like six seconds left, like fouling at that particular moment is probably optimal. Um, but you know, with eight or nine or ten seconds left, it's too early, and with two or three seconds left, you're really risking fouling a shooter. So, um, so there are some bad times to foul as well. I, you know, there, if I, on Twitter, I will, I do definitely make it a point to like <laughs> always report the cases where fouling backfires. Uh, and the only reason I do that is because there are certain people out there who uh, have way more followers than I do and are like, you know, hall of fame writers who uh, will constantly report the other case, you know, where a kid makes a three to tie the game and they'll be like, oh, that's why you got to foul. That's why you got to foul. And I mean, you know, it's just pure anecdotal evidence. And so I, I just, I, I just want to make sure that the other side has equal airtime and that when something blows up that we all know that it blew up because there are those cases that happen. And that's why it's like a much more difficult decision, a much closer decision in terms of probability than, uh, than people uh, tend to think. Yeah. Uh, i just as somebody, I appreciated the blog post. It's it has sort of lent uh, a lot of fuel to you know my own fire in those discussions. Um, it's helpful mainly because I I you know I I do also like the amount of time that it takes for a shot uh, to travel in in those cases. And if you're you're defending well and you have a hand in the shooter's face and you can knock another you know second and a half to two seconds off the clock while the ball's in the air. And, you know, another like, you know, three quarters or a second off the clock while it's, you know, being rebounded. I, th I think you're you're going to win that battle most of the time. So that's where I stand. Um, but we have kept you here a little longer than we anticipated. Uh, so, Ken, if there's anything that you want to plug, uh, feel free. We have already plugged your Twitter account uh, and you're also doing stuff at The Athletic. Correct. Yes. Well, not now, but uh, when when the games do start again someday, I will be uh, writing about <laughs> writing about them from uh, from the analytical perspective. So uh, look for that again. Hopefully, hopefully in November, we'll uh, we'll be back to doing that. 
Is there a sign-up link or anything, uh, any deals that The Athletic is running right now for, uh, for first-time sign-ups? Well, you know, I'm, yeah, there's always, <laughs> there's always a, a deal. <laughs> I'll be the first to admit I've been a little bit out of the loop the past few weeks. So I don't, I, they were running a, what, like a 90-day free trial or something like that, I think. So uh, definitely check that out. There's still a lot of content over there on the college basketball side, a lot of, a lot of good stuff going up. So, uh, yeah, it's a great, great place to, uh, to get your fix. Yeah, we are, we're fans of, uh, we've had CJ Moore on the pod a few times. Oh, yeah. and, uh, he's, yeah. he's terrific. So we're, we're, we're big fans of The Athletic and happy you're doing stuff there. Nice. But uh, Ken, thanks for your time, man. I appreciate it. Um, and hopefully we will be able to do this again um, and, and get more insight because this is, I think, really good for our listeners. Well, I appreciate that, guys. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, thanks for having me on. All right, man, stay safe and then, you know, keep all those close to you safe as well. All right, you too. All right, again, I'd like to say a big thanks to Ken Pomeroy for uh, his time tonight. Um, if you are not already following Ken and Pom on Twitter, please do so at Ken Pomeroy. Um, if you don't subscribe to his site, I suggest you do. The uh, The analytics there is, is always top-notch. Um, there's always a, a weird, faint blue hinge to my screen uh, throughout pretty much the entire college basketball season. So I spend a lot of time on a site. It's it's well worth it, and it's only like it's like twenty five bucks for a year, right? It's twenty bucks a year, and I'm twenty proud bucks. To, I'm proud to say uh, Missouri fans are the twenty fourth uh, most active uh, fan base on his site in terms of subscribers, and second in the SEC behind only Kentucky. So what that tells me is. One, good for you all supporting uh, Ken and his work. <laughs> Two, um, everyone's a masochist here because they really want to know what goes wrong. So that's, <laughs> that's that's good on a lot of you. You know, you, there have been some trying times, but you know what? You, you stare uh, adversity in the face and you really, really want to understand how the plane crashed. So that that's good. That's good. Um, I think it's important. That's a good coping skill to have is to understand why something happened, not just be helpless. Exactly. Um, yeah, so subscribe to his site. If you're also uh, so inclined, the 90-day um, deal at The Athletic is still up. Head over to The Athletic. And not only do you get Ken's great stuff, but uh, our friend CJ Moore as well. Um, all the good writing about Mizzou. Uh, and Peter Baugh does good stuff for uh, Mizzou football. Um, moving on. Matt, smoothest transition ever. Uh, last week, Mizzou basketball was actually very active in the uh, sending out offers. Um, you that you still there? Something yeah, I'm happened. Still, I, I am still here. <laughs> I am still here. Uh, I, I was plugging in uh, my external drive so I could pull up uh, the list of offers. <laughs> I have uh, an Excel sheet that uh, contains them all. Uh, yeah, the last week, uh, I believe they sent out four offers um legend geeter a combo forward out of river rouge a really really uh well-established program in michigan uh six seven two twenty prospect uh they logan landers a fast rising uh i'd say a, a stretch post you know he's not a, he's six ten, uh probably like 215 220 uh but can handle can step out um but has enough size to play on the block he's out of uh, Brookfield Academy uh, in Cedarburg, Wisconsin. Uh, and then a guy that I think is just been rocketing up recruiting boards, uh, James Graham III 
another Wisconsin prospect, uh, the third one in the last uh, two in the last month, I think, uh, out of Nicolette, which is another good program in Milwaukee. Uh, also a teammate on a Wisconsin playground with David Joplin, who holds a Mizzou offer. Uh, Graham's been blown up. Uh, I think he picked up uh, Wake Forest offers, Vandy offer, um, Virginia Tech. I think I may have said Xavier. If not, Xavier's offered one. And then a couple days ago, um, a really notable one from Michigan State. So uh, he's in full-blown blow-up mode. And then uh, one that I think some people may be surprised by, but I think Missouri's been involved to a certain degree, but they hadn't pulled the trigger with a formal offer. Uh, Peyton Watson, a long 6'7", 180-pound wing out of Long Beach Poly, uh, top 20 prospect uh, in the 2021 class. Also plays at the high school alma mater of new Missouri point guard Drew Bugs. So those are the four that went out last week. Um, I think over the last month, Mizzou's kind of really focused more on the front court. Early on, they were focused on combo guards and uh, point guards, and now they've sort of shifted more towards, uh, I think what I would say, more stretch bigs and combo forwards in the last couple mm-hmm. of weeks. So that's where the boards moved to at this point. Yeah, so when it comes to the positionality of these guys, one thing I always like to say... Um, Who can they guard the, should probably define it, what their position that, is. That, that's, that's their position, right. Uh, so a good example is Logan Landers. Um, who is Logan Landers going to guard? He's going to guard post players. Um, he is a skilled, uh, skilled post. He's going to play a lot around the perimeter. He's going to probably shoot a lot of threes in college. Pick and um, pop guy. Yeah, big-time pick-and-pop guy. Looks like he can pass the ball, he can dribble the ball, he can do all the things that you want sort of a modern-day uh, big man to do. Um, but he's he's not he's not the most athletic guy. He's, he's not going to get out there and defend a wing. Um, and so because of that, like he's going he's gonna to be a post guy. Um, I like Landers a lot. I don't know necessarily uh, how likely the... Um, you know, the recruitment is going to go there. Um, Graham blowing up doesn't really surprise me. Really good size, combo forward. Everybody is in love with this combo forward position. I'm actually kind of surprised, and maybe it's because uh, Graham's a little more skilled than a guy like Joplin, but I'm surprised that Joplin hasn't quite hit that level of, of blow up yet. He's had He's fielded some good offers, but he hasn't quite landed that, I think that sort of high major plus, um, you know, blue blood, level offer like uh you know like graham did with michigan state yeah it'll be interesting because i know iowa state's kind of poked around there um and i think he's a good kind of fit for what steve prom does it'll be interesting if i know marquette's kind of kicking the tires too but is marquette going to be more inclined to go with graham who is in town there and uh i think you know if you look at how steve wachkowski plays he really really likes having a skilled combo forward in space because of how he uses his bigs in their base offense. You know, when they come down, those guys have to be able to pick, pop, move, play out of, you know, handoffs and dribble a little bit. So I think his skill set is probably a little bit better fit for what Marquette is. That's not a knock on Joplin. I just view Joplin as more of a spot up guy uh, and who's going to, you know, you know, bury guys on switches in the block. So their games are a little bit different and Graham may be a bigger fit for Marquette, but Joplin's a guy who I think, you know, if, if we had a full-blown grassroots season, which we're not going to have since today they the NCAA announced the dead period's going through July, 
I think if Joplin had been out on the Under Armour circuit, he would have seen substantial interest perk up. So is that, like we said, is that something that works in Missouri's favor? Maybe. Maybe it does. Um, if Graham sort of plays his way or gets out of their reach, if some other Blue Bloods come in or High Major Plus programs come in, maybe the, you know being in early with Joplin helps. So I think they've got some good options there. Um, Geeter's a guy who I remember hearing about from folks in Michigan a couple of years ago, mostly just because he had in you know great positional size as a freshman. Um, you know, I think it's one of those situations like we talk about where a guy can look good at a young age, but what's but you know everyone's developmental curve is different. And Geeter, I think some guys in his class have caught up to him. He's mostly getting MAC offers. Uh, Missouri and Georgetown are his only uh, high major offers. I think he's a good prospect. I think. Um, you know, athletically, he may not be quite where like a Joplin is at this point, but I still think it's a solid guy to take a look at. Um, it'll be interesting sort of how they sort through the front court options at this point. Um, and I, you know, in late March, they offered Yaya Keita, uh, a 6'9", 225, kind of raw athletic big out of DeSmet in St. Louis, who I think, you know, is going to need some skill work when he gets to campus, but the kid's got an insane motor, um, is athletic as all get out, can run the floor in transition, can handle a little bit. You know, how do they sort of sort through those options at kind of that flex four spot there it is really going to be interesting to me and sort of who they want to grab. Um, I think you and I have said that, you know, getting a combo forward in this class would be really, really handy. It's just a question of who's, of, of what they're going to prioritize or who they're going to prioritize at that position. I think you know, they've got some nice diversity of options at this point. So that that's sort of my takeaway is the offers have gone out over the last two months. Is I think that they've done a nice job identifying guys with different skill sets. It's just going to be interesting to see which ones sort of move to the top of the pecking order and whether or not those guys are in reach. So are there any guys that uh, are kind of standing out that, that you know, once the offer sort of went out, you're, you've sort of, you know, perked up or, or, become a bigger fan of i really like i really like graham you know i think he's a guy who you can shift between the three and the four really easily i think he's a guy who missouri's you know sort of gone to a guy like mitchell smith who can who can switch pretty easily you know and you know handle himself one through four a little bit i think he can sort of go that route um but i think he's going to be a guy that's going to be in demand so I always keep coming back to Joplin just because I think he's a guy who's shown that he can spot up on the wing. He can play in the corner. You know, he's, I really love the ability for him to like down screen, bury a guy, you know, show good footwork and maneuver to a quality jumper in the mid range and that he can hit. Um, you know, he, he doesn't look as explosive in transition, but he's got good, good uh, elevation off one foot, you know, out in transition. I think he's a guy who, you know, over time has enough of a defined skill set and can be kind of a unique matchup. And a problem that Missouri can use him in a lot of different ways. And if you believe that the offense is going to use more pick and rolls and more pick and pops, I think he's a guy that, that can fit there. Um, I like Landers for all the reasons you said. Um, I like that he can pick and pop. I like that he's comfortable in space offensively. Um, and I like the fact that he can handle, you know, I, I really like the idea of Missouri you know, if they're going to play in pick and rolls and they, you know, they want to keep the defense on their heels, I'd love having a big that could short roll 
you know, force defenses to help up or force guys to pinch in and then, you know, make good reads and good passes. I think that's another wrinkle that you can have, and you're not having to give up any size defensively. I think you can still have a guy who's got a sturdy frame down low who can, you know, provide some resistance against SEC bigs. So I, I kind of like his skill set on the perimeter, but those are kind of the guys that have stood out to me so far. Um, and like I said earlier, I like Kata. I think he's a good sort of long-term guy to bring in, plays with just a ton of effort, rebounds, you know, doesn't need a ton of offense run for him. But, you know, at when you watch DeSmet play, sometimes he'll get, you know, to his 11 or 12 points without needing, you know, a ton of stuff run for him. He may only get it off one post up. So I kind of like that. I like guys who sort of, are, you know, can do a lot of different things and, you know, still find a way to be productive even if they're not the focal point offensively. So those are the guys that stand out to me at this point. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value to, you know, having a guy who can, you know, basically screen and roll and hunker down in the dunker spot and get putbacks and, and you know, catch lobs and, and play that kind of role. Um, so I think for this class, like if Missouri could find a way to make a quick addition, uh, you know, and, and add somebody like Kaida before the end of the summer, I think that that would really kind of give them the momentum for the kind of finish to the class that maybe they're hoping for. Um, and then you kind of have this foundation of, you know, two guys who kind of project to be early impact role players um, with Brookshire and, and Kaida, uh, you know, but guys that will also you can really build your foundation around uh, and then maybe just kind of insert, uh, you know, a couple more, maybe more high ceiling guys like a guy like a Buffkin or a, a Tamar Bates um, and just sort of make the, you know, one of those guys like the real focal point of of the kind of recruiting class that I think Missouri fans have kind of been wanting to see for a few cycles now. Um, and we, you know, we've talked about how like the overall need for bodies hasn't, hasn't been there. And, you know, so it, it's kind of hurt the overall look of what Missouri has been trying to do from a recruiting aspect. But at the same time, like, you know, the level of impact guy that Mizzou has been landing, you know, the last couple of cycles just hasn't quite been, uh, enough to put this team over the top, and and so I think if you have the foundation built with a Brookshire and with somebody like Kaida, uh, you know, adding Bates, a Buffkin, um, in that class, you know, and then either like a Joplin or a Landers to sort of complement them, that I think you you have this well-rounded class uh, that people can get really excited about. And that. And on the, the offer front, I think that they're on track. You know, I think they've typically offered between what, like twenty-five and a little over thirty guys in a class, at least when Martin's been here. And they typically start extending offers in late April into May. So I think you know maybe earlier in the spring we would have said, "Man, the board looks a little tight." Now it's starting to look a little bit more like we've seen in the past couple of years. Um, you know, I, I think people are going to look at these guys they've offered, you know, maybe not see recruiting rankings next to their name, but I think one, that's a function of these guys are coming off really good prep years. A lot of them are coming off good prep years, but they haven't been able to sort of cement a jump in the rankings by going out onto shoe circuits or going onto the grassroots circuit. So you're seeing the lack of that spring period maybe depress some rankings a little bit or depress movement because guys haven't been able, you know, Scouts haven't been able to get out and see guys head to head and kind of compare and contrast and evaluate. So I think what you do is you go back and if you're like me, you go and you find huddle film of these guys and you watch them and you try and get a sense for who they are. And I think the one thing 
as I watch each of these guys is if you're not building a class with instant impact guys, are you getting guys like you said, who can come in and be quality, you know, role reserve guys and can take on, you know, a certain niche within the system. And I think all these guys can in a certain way. And I think that's, what's appealing about them is, you know, we talked about Brookshire's ability to shoot off the catch, you know, and off and off the dribble. And he's got, and he's got a level of polish that you don't see in a lot of guys. And he's at six, two. Now, if he keeps growing, suddenly that's a guy who at combo guard, you know, maybe doesn't see a ton of minutes this year with three point guards, but man, you've got a guy whose shooting stroke is there, and we know how desperate Missouri will be to improve its shooting. You know, from the perimeter this year, so there's a role for him. Kite is a guy who's athletic and can get on the glass and be tough. If you could get Joplin, that's another guy that can fit the offense in certain permutations there. So I think that that's the one thing that I take away that I'm heartened by is there's some skill sets that are good. You know platforms for these guys to grow into three or four year contributors if you can get them in the program and I think that's all you can hope for at this point is you know are you finding guys that fit your system and that you know can project out pretty well and I think you know obviously it would be nice to see them live and you know get out and see some games on the grassroots circuit but you know from what I've seen I think they've got some promising guys in this latest batch yeah and you know at this point we can only assume like where they are with some of the other combo guard you know prospects I think we you can kind of assume that they're still going to be hot hot after Tamar Bates and Kobe Bufkin, you know. But where are they with Hersey Miller? I mean, are they still like, are they still spending time with somebody like Hunter Salas or Hunter Salas or Malachi Branham and or JD and Mickens. guys like that? Yeah, you know, it's just like are they are they invested in those guys? Are they still trying to um, you know to maybe pull the upset with some of the more higher rank guys or? Are just maybe kind of hoping that that Bates and Buckin are the the guys that will they'll be able to make the difference with. Um, it'll be an interesting uh, couple of months, especially like you said. Now that we don't really have a live period, and if they're shutting it down through July, that means that there's really only a couple of weeks in August. Um, you know, for there even to possibly be a summer session. Um, yeah, so that I mean we we might be in a position where there's absolutely just no grassroots season, um, which will be weird, but I don't know if, if, if you're smart and you're agile, um, maybe you can work that to your advantage. Yep. And they're already on the board and uh, it's a guy that I think a lot of people feel good about. So we'll, we'll see where they go from here. Uh, Matt, you got anything to plug before we get out of here? Oh, no, I just would say that, uh, Last week, wrote a piece on Missouri's pace. It's very long. I'm sorry. Um, but there's video, and there's pretty charts. Um, so give that a read. I think it's it's really, really – it was enlightening for me to go through and do it and sort of understand kind of the nuance about what Missouri does, you know, and its style of play right now and, you know, where I, where I think it could go. And then this week I published uh, kind of the housekeeping uh, SEC exit survey, um, which is – I think I put in the piece that you and I try and, you know – take the temperature of the league at various points in the off season. And this is kind of our first stab at that. We don't have all the guys across the league who have decided whether to stay or go in the NBA draft, but it's a good a time as any to sort of see where the league is. And that went up this week. Um, and that looks at returners, departures and recruits and kind of a brief synopsis on where each program is. So if you want to read about those things, they're on the site. Head to rockamnation.com. Uh, read everything that's there, please. Um, 
make sure that you are subscribed to this here podcast. Uh, if you are subscribed, then not only do you get the wonderful episodes of Dive Cuts, but you also get before the box score with with Brandon Kylie and and Nate Edwards, two fantastic football writers. Um, so go do that. Uh, follow Matt on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. We talk nonsense, and we'll be back uh, in two weeks for some more cocktail hour talk. Maybe, maybe by then I'll have another cocktail to tell everybody about that we can uh, we can get them going on. I don't know. I may have Old Ezra, and I'll give a review then. So I should have my bottle of Old Ezra by then. Uh, I think that's supposed to arrive this weekend, and I'm going going on a bourbon hunt on Friday. You have, you have my you can contact me. Venmo works if you find <laughs> I'm I'm prepared. Uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. We love you. See you guys.